Thank you, worship team. You may have a seat. Good morning. It is good to see you here this morning. If you're a guest, uh, man, my name is Chan. I get the joy of serving as one of the pastors here at Spanish River. For those of you who are joining online, welcome. We're glad you've joined your church family in worship. Are y'all ready to study the Bible? All right, all right. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to Jonah chapter 4. We'll pray and we'll jump into this text this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that not only have you given us your word, but you have given us yourself. And so, Heavenly Father, as we study your word this morning, as we read the book of Jonah, may it read us. May your Holy Spirit take the words on these pages and breathe them into our hearts, into our minds, so that they would forever transform our lives by your grace and for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. We're going to wrap up this great story of Jonah this morning. Uh, we're going to look at chapter 4, and so I wanted to start with why. Why have we spent uh, the last three weeks studying the book of Jonah? What does it have to do with my life? I mean, what does a story about a weird dude who was swallowed by a big fish and vomited up on some beach have anything to do with my life? Well, it has everything to do with your life. The whole theme of the book of Jonah is God relentlessly pursuing after you. It's about sin and grace. Sin is about us running from God. Grace is about God pursuing after undeserving sinners like you and me. And so that's the whole book of Jonah. And so last week, we ended chapter 2 with Jonah being barfed out on a beach. And so this week, we're going to see that barf boy gets a second chance, all right? So the first two verses of chapter 3 are a repeat of chapter 1. God is calling Jonah to the same thing over again. If you read in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. I mean, it's kind of like parenting. How often do you ask your kid uh, to do something and he responds the first time? No, it's usually the second or the third. I mean, we would like it to be the first time every time, but the reality is it isn't. But God is patient and gracious with Jonah. This time Jonah listens and obeys. And so God calls uh, Jonah to Nineveh, this evil city in which we saw in verse 1. It was so evil, the stench of its evilness arose as an aroma that caught up in God's nostrils. This is incredibly evil city. It was filled with witchcraft and prostitution. The, the streets, blood filled the streets because Dead bodies were just stacked up on top of each other. One commentary says that chariots would ride through the streets, crushing these bodies. It was a horribly evil city. And so we see in chapter 3 that Jonah goes and preaches to the city of Nineveh. And shockingly, this evil city responds to the grace of God from the greatest to the least. Now, it seems like this would be the climax of the story, right? This, it seems like this would be a good place for the story to end, where Jonah and the Ninevites lived happily ever after. The end, right? But that's not how it ends. There's a shocking ending. Look at, at chapter 4, verse 1. 
It says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. I mean, what an astonishing turn of events. I mean, this would be like Billy Graham going down to Hard Rock Stadium and preaching the gospel, and thousands of people coming to Christ, and then Billy Graham throws a temper tantrum before God. I mean, this is what Jonah is doing here. I also want you to know, regardless of how much you have read or not read the Bible, we are all theologians here. We all live our lives in response to who we believe God is. And, and even if you're here this morning and you're an atheist, maybe a family member drug you here and you're here and you're like, man, I don't believe God or the Bible. But here, here's the thing. Your belief that God doesn't exist is your theology and it shapes your life. That's the God conundrum. Like, you can try to ignore God, but you're still living your life in response to God. Now, even us as Christians can hold one set of beliefs in our heads, but our hearts betray our true beliefs. This is where Jonah was at, and it was messing up his life in a big way. Jonah calls out to God in anger. Now, we're going to look at this prayer this morning. And it is a prayer that Jonah prayed with incredible displeasure and anger, yet in it reveals the beauty of God's character. Jonah is quoting a list of God's attributes that we find first in uh, Exodus 34, 6 and about a half dozen other places through the Bible. And so I would be remiss to not pause and just take a look at the good theology that Jonah has before we look at what went horribly wrong with his heart. And so, look with me at verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Nineveh. I mean, this is why I was running in the first place. This is why I was heading, you know, as far away from what you have called me to do as fast as I can. He says, that is why I made, heart, uh, made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. First, we see that God is gracious and merciful, that he's compassionate. Jonah is struggling to wrap his heart around God's grace and mercy. I mean, this has been the tension of the entire story of Jonah is he's failed to fully grasp, not just in his mind, but in his heart, the outrageously wild nature of God's grace. And so oftentimes that's what we struggle with. I know that's what I struggle with. This is where my heart, what I feel about God, doesn't always match my head what I know to be true about God. And so oftentimes I find myself trying to earn his grace and his mercy and his acceptance. Now, here's the problem with that. When I feel like I'm performing well, I become self-righteous and arrogant and prideful. and I'm tempted to judge others who aren't uh, like me, like Jonah did. Or if I'm not performing well, then I'm self-loathing, full of condemnation, shame, and guilt, like Jonah. Now, how can I convince my heart 
that God is gracious and merciful to me personally? Well, I think to answer this question, the answer to this question is beautifully found by unpacking the rest of Jonah's good theology. Look, secondly, it's God is slow to anger. First, we need to wrestle with the fact that God is an angry God. That God is a God of wrath and judgment. Like you can't read very far into scripture to see, to see that God gets angry at sin. He gets angry at those who would harm those he loves. Now, some of you might be saying, well, I don't like to talk about a God of wrath and judgment. Let's just talk about a God of love. But here's the problem with that. And oftentimes when we try to make God more loving, we actually make him less loving. Like, think this through with me. I, I shared this uh, a few months ago in a sermon, but I think a lot of people get hung up here with God, and so it's worth repeating. The problem is, is that if you want a loving God, you have to have an angry God. Like, process, th think this through with me. Loving people get angry not in spite of their love, but because of it. In fact, the more closely and deeply you love people in your life, the angrier you can get. Have you noticed that? Like, when you see people being harmed or abused, you get angry. And if you see people abusing themselves, you get angry at them out of your love for them. Your sense of love and justice are activated together, not in opposition from each other. Now, if you see people destroying themselves or, doing, uh, or destroying other people and you don't get mad, it's because you don't care. Like, you you're too absorbed into yourself. You're too cynical. You're too hard. The more loving you are, the more ferociously angry you will be at whatever harms those you love. And the greater the harm, the more resolute your anger will be against it. Now, this is the illustration I always love to give. I have a beautiful wife and three beautiful daughters. And if one night a perpetrator broke into my house and sought to bring harm to my wife and daughters, and I just stood by passively doing nothing, you wouldn't say, oh, that guy's a loving husband. That guy's a loving father, like father of the year award. Like none of you would say that. You would say, no, that's a horrible father. That's a horrible husband. A loving husband, a loving father would bring his full wrath against the perpetrator. Right? Now here's where the analogy gets difficult. In this analogy, we are the perpetrators. We are the ones who have sinned against God and sinned against each other, deserving the full wrath and judgment of God. And that's why we're, God, we're glad that God is slow to, angry, to get angry. So it makes no sense to say, I don't want a wrathful God, I just want a loving God. If God is loving and good, he must be angry at evil. Angry enough to do something about it. And he did. On the cross, Jesus Christ took God's wrath and judgment that was rightly due us. And he bore that for us on the cross so that we could receive his grace and his mercy and his steadfast love. 
Now, it, it's so that we could feel acceptance as sons and daughters. Now, the question may rise in your mind, but how do we know there isn't a limit to God's grace and mercy? We'll look at the next aspect of God's character revealed in verse 2, abounding in steadfast love. His steadfast love is a special word in Hebrew. It's, it's a word that's pronounced hesed. Say hesed with me. Y'all are Hebrew scholars now. That's great. Hesed is often translated as loving kindness or loyal love. The word refers to God's covenant faithfulness. You see, God's love for you is not based upon your character, but upon his character. God's faithfulness to Jonah wasn't based upon Jonah's faithfulness, was it? It was based upon God's faithfulness, his covenant unfailing love for us. You see, hesed is a kind of love that never gives up. It never lets up. It never lets you down. Now, if you're still doubting God's grace and mercy, then look at this last aspect of God's character that appears in Jonah's prayer. He relents from disaster. He spares us his wrath and judgment. The only reason that God can relent disaster that would have fallen to citizens of Nineveh was because ultimately he would pour out his full judgment and wrath upon his son, Jesus, God the Son, on the cross. Now that's great news for the citizens of Nineveh. It is good news for sinners like you and me. The same God who rescued Jonah from the belly of the well, the same God who spared the Ninevites from destruction, is the same God who's relentlessly pursuing after you. He rescues and spares sinners like you and me. Now, God is a God of second chances. He's relented. He gave Jonah a second chance, and he's giving the Ninevites a second chance. This is good news for all of us. Now, some of you are here this morning, and you're living with regret. There is this gnawing sense of regret that just haunts your heart and mind. And you live under the weight of it. But here's what I want you to see. Here's the good news. When we repent, God forgives. When we stop running from God and we repent, we automatically, by God's grace, collide with his mercy and his steadfast love in such a way that it wipes away all of the sin, all of your sin. Like famous, famous uh, uh, Holocaust survivor Corey Ten Boom says, um, God takes our sin and goes on, on a fishing expedition and buries it at the bottom of the sea. You know, the only reason he can separate our sin and bury it at the bottom of the sea is because Christ was buried in a grave for us. And on the third day, we're going to celebrate it in two Sundays. He overcame sin and death for us. He is victorious. Now, on the cross, Jesus took what we deserve so that we could get what we don't deserve. Namely, God's grace and mercy. Now, that's just not good news. That's great news. And I think we need to be reminded of that truth every single day. I think we struggle with that. And we need to be reminded of the greatest news ever. This is what the book of Jonah is about. 
Now, can I talk for a moment about our hearts? Like, how can we have a good theology in our head but have bad hearts like Jonah? Um, there are two enemies of the cross that rob us of the power of the gospel. These two enemies are like the thieves that hung on either side of Jesus on the cross. These are two thieves that are seeking to rob you from experiencing the power of the gospel in your everyday life. These two thieves are self-righteousness and idolatry. Now, the question I want you to wrestle with is, how do I know if these two enemies of the gospel have hijacked my heart like Jonah's? How do I know that? Well, here's the first way. Pay attention to your anger. Pay attention to your anger. Pay attention to what makes you get angry and upset. Look at verse 1 again. It says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly to the Lord, and he was angry. And then in verse 3 it says, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better to me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Or as in the words of Dr. Phil, how's that working for you? How's that anger working for you? Now, God wants Jonah to examine his heart. We must pay attention to our anger because it exposes in us self-righteousness. This is what was going on with Jonah. Jonah didn't think the Ninevites deserved God's grace and mercy. They were the hated enemy of the people of God. And he just wanted wrath and judgment for them. Like, no mercy and grace, all wrath and judgment. But haven't we all been there? Haven't we all done this? We want grace and mercy for ourselves. But for those who have hurt us, those who have offended us, those who have a different political belief than us, wrath and judgment. Just wrath and judgment for them all. This is Jonah's second prayer in the book. Remember his first prayer? The first prayer was from a belly of a whale. And he's crying out for God's grace and mercy for himself. Now in this second prayer, he's crying out for judgment and wrath for the Ninevites. You see, it's natural to want mercy for yourself, but justice for others. I mean, it's easy to see other people's sins, especially when they offend you or inconvenience you, but we are often blind to our own sins. We celebrate God's mercy, but scream at our children when they mess up. We sing of God's amazing grace, but punish our spouses with silence when they haven't lived up to our expectations. We are thankful that we have been forgiven, but we say to a person who's suffering because of some decision that they made that they deserve that. Now, self-righteousness is an enemy of the gospel. It will rob you not only of gospel power, but it will rob you of gospel joy. It will destroy you and destroy relationships with others. We must war against it in our lives. We must pay attention to our anger. Now, secondly, we, may, we need to pay attention to our despair. I mean, why is Jonah despairing? He runs out into the desert because he can't stand seeing the people of Nineveh reveling in God's grace. 
Look with me at verse 5. It says, Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. I mean, Jonah is like, he wants to get away. It, It is making him angry, seeing the people of Nineveh revel in God's grace. So he goes up on a hilltop, builds himself a little arbor, a little shade tent. And he's sitting back, and he's waiting for the big show to happen. He's wanting God's wrath and judgment to rain down on Nineveh like it did on Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's going to have a front row seat to it all. And yet, look at what God does. In verse 6, it says, Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah, you would have thought Jonah would have seen this as God's grace and it would have comforted him. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. Look at verse 7. But at the dawn, but at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Here's what God's doing. He's exposing Jonah's idolatrous heart. Jonah was guilty of the very same things that the Ninevites were guilty of. He confused the gift with the gift giver. He lost what he thought was his only source of comfort and protection, and now he's despairing. Look at verse 8. It says, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well? To be angry for the plant? And he says, yes, I do well angry. Angry enough to die. Now, a Christian way of despairing is saying, oh, Jesus, come back. Right? I mean, my mom used to pray this prayer all the time, especially when I was a teenager. (laughs) She would be disciplining me, and she would just stop right in the middle of disciplining me and go, oh, Jesus, please come back. Now, I'm not judging my mom. You shouldn't either. I was a really tough kid to deal with. My wife will even tell you sometimes I'm a tough adult to deal with. So I'm not judging my mom for praying that Jesus comes back. In fact, I'm not not saying that there's anything wrong with praying that Jesus comes back. There are times when the evil is so rampant in the world and sin is so devastating in the world that there is this longing that the king of kings would come back and restore all things that are broken. But if you're just praying that Jesus would come back because you're not happy with how God is running things down here on earth, then that's despairing. And we despair because our idols are being threatened. Now, let me help you, help you wrap your heart and mind around what's happening with Jonah by asking you this question. How can you truly, like, how can you truly enjoy all the things that God has given us in this earth? Man, how can you really enjoy it? You know what the answer is? We must not let the gifts be ultimate, but the gift giver. We can't let gifts ever become ultimate, only the gift giver. When we make gifts ultimate, gifts own us. And the problem is, our quest for the ultimate, we settle for far less than our souls demand of us. 
We settle for created things rather than the creator. And the great problem with that is we've become enslaved to those created things once we make them ultimate things. They own us. Like, for example, how many of y'all own a boat? I mean, that's a great toy until it owns you, right? Now, how many of you own a dog? Like, none of you own dogs, all right? Your dog owns you. You all know how I know this? Who's walking behind who with a plastic bag, right? Now, I know that's a silly illustration, but it points to how created things can own us, can enslave us. Now, when we look for created things for our comfort and for our refuge and for our hope rather than the creator, it robs us of what our souls really need. It robs us of experiencing daily God's grace and steadfast love. This is what Jonah said in chapter 2. Remember that from last week? In Jonah chapter 2 verse 8, Jonah says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Like they abandon the steadfast love of God for these created things. Or as the NIV translates it, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And so our pursuit of created things as ultimate cause us to forfeit God's grace and a steadfast love in our lives. It robs us of that. You and I don't need to be rescued from just our idols. No, we need to be rescued from an idolatrous heart. And God will lovingly do this. Like Jonah, when we look to gifts rather than the gift giver for our ultimate comfort and security and hope, we will become despairing. Why? Because these things are fleeting things. They are not the steadfast love of God. And just as the whale was evidence of God's grace in Jonah's life, so is the worm and the wind. God wasn't just messing with Jonah by sending a worm to rob him of his shade, of his comfort, of his refuge. He was trying to show him that he was his ultimate comfort. And refuge. Now, both self-righteousness and idolatry are two sides of the same coin. Both are an attempt to avoid Jesus as Savior. And both rob us from experiencing God's grace and steadfast love in our everyday lives. Now, the big question that we have to end this book with is, did Jonah experience God's redeeming grace? Because the book just ends by God asking a question that the book doesn't give us an answer to. Like, it leaves us hanging with an unanswered question. It causes us to create this tension within our hearts and minds that we're forced to resolve. Look at it with me in verse 10. It says, but the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And then in verse 11, listen to this. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people and cannot tell their right hand from their left. And many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Boom. 
story ends, lights out. And we're all sitting here going, what? You're going to end it that way? You're not going to answer the question? You're not going to let us know what happened to Jonah? This closing question is something that God is wanting us to answer. He wants us to reconcile what we know to be true about God in our heads with how we feel about God and other people in our hearts. He wants us to be compassionate people, full of grace and mercy. That's how we know that God has transformed our hearts. So this closing question compels us to see the heart of God towards sinners. And it propels us into the great redemptive mission of God. You see, the theme of the story of Jonah is all about God pursuing after undeserving sinners like you and I. We are running as fast as we can from God, and we typically run towards self-righteousness, trying to justify ourselves apart from what Christ did for us on the cross, or idolatry, looking for our identity, our validation, our justification in created things. Grace is God pursuing after us rescuing us from our self-righteous and idolatrous hearts. So how do we know that Jonah was ultimately redeemed? Well, he wrote the book. And not only is writing the book compelling evidence, but what is absolutely convincing is the way he wrote the book. You see, God's grace frees us from pretending to be better than we are. Perhaps if Jonah had never experienced God's grace, he would have wrote the story radically different. He would have never put in the fact that he was a self-righteous racist or an idolatrous like the Ninevites. He wouldn't have been free to be honest about who he really was. He would have just told us a story like, but the word of the Lord came to Jonah and Jonah obeyed him like a good little prophet. But that's not how he wrote the story. He would have left out the part of the story where he tried to flee from God. And God chased him down with a storm. He would have left out the part about being swallowed by a big fish. And he definitely would have left out the part of being barfed barfed up by a big fish on a beach. Because no one wants to be remembered as barf boy, right? But we know that Jonah experienced God's redeeming grace because he wrote the story just as we have read it. Now what Jonah is trying to tell us is that God's pursuing grace of sinners like you and me should compel us to live on mission and sharing with everyone we can his mercy, his grace, and his steadfast love. You see, the book of Jonah and all of Scripture is a big picture story about big picture living. Grace yanks us out of our self-absorbed lives to live rich, deep, satisfying, self-sacrificing lives for his mission. And so let me ask you, who's your one? Who's your one? Who's the one person that God is calling you to reach? Who is the one that God is calling you to share his grace and mercy and steadfast love with? Don't run from your calling. 
When you are captivated by grace, you will give your life willingly to see others experience the outrageously wild nature of God's grace. So who's your one? Who's your one? Who's the one that you're going to invite, invite in East, on Easter to hear the life-transforming message of Jesus Christ? Who's your one? Now, if you had grown up in an Orthodox Jewish home, you would have celebrated Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And your grandpa or your dad would have got up and he would have read the book of Jonah straight through, four chapters straight. And at the end of the reading of Jonah, your whole family would have said in unison, we are Jonah. I am Jonah. I am Jonah. And what, would you, what you would be saying is, I need atonement. The fact that we know that Jonah found redemption gives us hope that we, like Jonah, can experience the redemption of God, his outrageously wild grace. Will you stand with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning, I confess I am Jonah. I am Jonah. I'm like Jonah in running from you and running to self-righteousness or running towards idolatry. God, more than anything, I need you to relentlessly pursue after me and remind me of the depth and the riches and the beauty of your grace and mercy and has said your steadfast love. So often like Jonah, my heart runs. Holy Spirit, I pray that this morning our hearts would be captivated anew and afresh by your grace and mercy and steadfast love. Ah, oh, Holy Spirit, make it be so. Make it be so.